You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor here at Cornerstone. And today I'm joined by our lead pastor, Bobby Harrell. Together, we're going to have a wonderful conversation today, really digging into the content of our new Apostles' Creed series, specifically on the line, creator of heaven and earth. If you have anything that you'd like to contribute to these upcoming conversations, if you have any questions or feedback as you listen along, or even as you attend in person at Cornerstone, we'd love to hear whatever that feedback would be. So if you would text us at 817-809-3040, We'll take all of the very best questions and respond to them in these podcasts, actually, as you'll see us do today. We hope you're enjoying the Apostles' Creed series. We hope it's challenging as you begin to learn how to articulate your faith, and we hope that you're able to fully engage in the content of these upcoming Cornerstone Conversations. So use the language challenging as we prepare the sermons every week. Do intentionally try to have challenging material in those sermons. Yeah, we don't try to just be provocative for the sake of it. We don't try to just go out there and cause controversy in what we say. But there's sometimes... The other side of that coin, though, is we don't want to water it down and make it so simplistic that you're like in a third grade Sunday school class either. Yeah, because there's some really meaty and challenging things in the Word of God that I think over time the church has ignored out of the sake of ease, as opposed to really getting in and having a very clear response to the Word. The text needs to be wrestled with. And I say the text, the Bible is not something that is an easy read. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, It's not an easy read. And the text demands, when I say wrestle with it, I mean intellectual engagement, Mm -hmm. spiritual engagement. Yeah. Well, and even last week we talked about how there's a lot of overcompensation and trying to get away from some orthodoxy. Same thing with even the word meditation. We should be able to meditate on scripture. Great word. It's a wonderful word, but we've kind of gotten away from that because we're scared of mysticism. Transcendental meditation and now suddenly we're in Hinduism or Buddhism or something. That's correct. There is value in taking the scripture and really meditating on it, letting it then transform the way that we live our lives, allowing it to really come into our hearts and provoke it to action. So you talked about just a minute ago, you were telling the listeners, send in your questions. We got a very serious intellectual question this week, and it appears on face value to be a simple question. It is not a simple question. But it does speak to the traditions that everyone has grown to know That's and correct. understand. Okay, okay, so here's the question as it was sent in to us. It says, I have a question about last Sunday's message. What was Jesus referring to when he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and in my Father's house are many rooms, if we aren't going to be in heaven? Right. So what prompted this question is Sunday's sermon, Right. when we talked about, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. And we talked about creator. We talked about when the Bible uses the words heaven and earth, it may mean something different than what you're thinking heaven and earth means. Right. Because your tradition may have handed you inappropriate definitions of heaven and earth. Right. And so as I explained, and really this was maybe the core of the message Sunday, to try to get our thinking straight on what the heaven and earth reality is as being taught by the scripture. And I made the statement, several times Sunday morning, the story of the Bible is not Mm -hmm. believe on Jesus and have your sins forgiven so that you can die 
and after death fly away to heaven right. to live in heaven for eternity with Jesus. Mm-hmm. That is not the story the Bible is telling. The problem is many evangelicals have come to believe that that is the story the Bible is telling. Yeah. And there were many sitting in our church who were hearing this for the first time. So this time last year, we did an entire series called Heaven and Earth, Mm -hmm. where we took four or five weeks and talked through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, what God actually created. It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to explain the creative day order there, man being created, Eve being created, them living in the Garden of Eden. And there's a big descriptive on what Eden was like. Now, the whole series we did explaining all of this, the problem was that series happened in COVID lockdown. Yeah, we were totally online. For totally that. online. So it's very possible that in all of that service disruption, huge segments of our congregation, hundreds of people potentially did not hear that sermon series And I did not realize it until I was about halfway through this sermon on Sunday morning when I saw some blank looks. You just can tell visually when you're speaking to an audience whether you've lost the connection. I lost the connection Sunday. Yeah, It doesn't happen too often. I'm thankful. But I could tell there were some moments and with many individuals that I lost the connection with. Not that they tuned out, that what I was saying was totally new to them. Yeah. And as they were trying to comprehend what I was saying, we're not flying away to heaven to be with Jesus for eternity, question mark, question mark. As they're trying to process that statement, I'm still now a paragraph ahead. I've already said in a whole nother paragraph, and it was just hard to keep up in the message. Looking back now, if you didn't have comprehension on what we're talking about with what is heaven, what is earth? What happens after we die? What story is the Bible actually telling? Right. So I need to feel like we need to recover some of that in this podcast. Sure. We'll open Sunday's service with about a five-minute video recap of exactly what we're going to talk about right now, because I think it's so important that we not move too fast, too far ahead and leave our church members behind Mm -hmm. on what their understanding of the biblical story is. And it makes sense to give the benefit of the doubt to most people in the congregation It's very popularized at this point in basic Christian thought to say, oh, I'll fly away. Oh, glory, I'll fly away. Or think of the Sistine Chapel, just clouds and people just floating about and little cherub angels and, you know, the whole thing. I understand why it would be a difficult thing for people to overcome the mental image of because that is the image that's given out in popular Christianity. Medieval European imagery. So I'm talking all the paintings in the Louvre. You just referred to the Sistine Chapel, which is at the Vatican City in Mm -hmm. Rome. These are iconic, historic, visual images that have been painted by the most famous painters in history. The masters have given us these altar pieces and chapels and have given us all of this visual imagery of fluffy clouds, as you said, little naked baby cherubs, little baby wings, little baby wings, maybe harps, contemplative looks and whatever. It's very ethereal. Yeah, exactly. And so even though we know that's not heaven, it does shape our mental imagery when we say heaven and you immediately go to what you've seen visually to recreate what's being said. Right. So we have baggage to overcome then. We have to overcome our mental imagery from the art that we've seen. So let's deal with the question and then let's talk more about heaven and earth. Sure. Yeah. So the question specifically is asking, okay, I'm hearing what you're saying about heaven not being our eternal resting place. 
So what do you do then with Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and in my Father's house are many rooms? What do you do with those kind of Jesus statements? Let me come at this with several thoughts, first of all. So let's deal with Father's house. The passage being referred to is John 14. And John 14 is in the upper room discourse. Mm -hmm. So let me explain what that is. When Jesus comes to the last night where he's going to have the last supper and he's going to be arrested and tomorrow crucified. So we've come right up to the finish line now in the life of Christ. Those chapters in John, which are chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, being that prayer, he prays for his disciples. Mm -hmm. And then to Gethsemane, they go and he's arrested. Okay. Okay. So John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 are the upper room discourse. So let's go back to some things we've said here in our worship services. There are no chapters and verses in the original writings. Right. John is recording the events and these paragraphs flow one right to the other. It's just one ongoing monologue. One ongoing discourse. That is correct. So before you try to nail down 14, you have to back up to 13 to see what the context is. Mm -hmm. And you see Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. And then if you follow that conversation and read 13, 14, 15, 16, particularly before he starts praying in 17, you'll see that Jesus is saying the same thing and he's illustrating or giving them examples. He's talking to them about, I'm going to die. I am leaving you. And the whole thing, 13 to 16, is words of comfort because he knows that tomorrow at this time, they're going to be devastated when they see him nailed to the cross. It's going to rock their world and shake the foundations of what they believe. They're not just church members. Mm -hmm. These are his best friends. It's a unique relationship. He is both their Lord and he is their friend. And they have been with him for years and they are going to grieve and mourn and they're not going to know what just happened. Oh my goodness. We didn't see this coming because they literally dropped their lives to follow Jesus. Everything that they once knew of who they were and what they did and who they associated themselves with. They let all that go in favor of being with Jesus. So then if Jesus is delivering some heavy news, it's going to impact them in such a strong way. And obviously Jesus knows that. Of course, because he knows he's about to die. He's trying to prep them mentally so that they're not devastated tomorrow and just fall to pieces. Yeah. And so it's all about comfort and encouragement and it's going to be okay. And let me explain a little bit about what's happening. And you really won't understand it until afterwards. But I'm going to go ahead and try to tell you in some cryptic language. So that starts in 13. In John 14, then, he says these words. This is verse 1, 2, and 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Obviously, comfort, right? Don't be upset. You believe in God, right? Okay, that got a thumbs up from everybody. Well, not only that, it's a future tense. Don't let your heart be troubled. Something's going to happen. Guard yourself now. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Okay, so the first thing that pops out to me is, what is the father's house? So let's talk about that for a minute. You'll notice that the NIV, if you're a churchgoer long time, what's stuck in your head that's playing on a loop are the words, in my father's house are many Mansions, Mansions, yeah. KJV. So we're going to fly away to heaven to live in mansions is that tradition that's being taught. And And rather prominently. Oh, yeah. And when I said Sunday, that is not what the Bible's teaching. Mm -hmm. 
So immediately, everybody who has that point of reference needs to mentally shift to John 14. But Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions, and he's going to go build them and grab us and take us away. And off we go. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got it. Because that's the tradition I came from, too. Yeah. But that's not really the story the Bible's telling. So let's do what you suggested. First, let's deal with what is the father's house. So let me take you to what Jesus would have understood the father's house to be. Okay. What Peter, James, John, and all these people sitting at the table as they're having the last yeah, supper. How would they understand the Father's house? If you said in that upper room, the Father's house, that phrase, what mental picture would they jump to immediately? Mm-hmm. And we don't have to guess because the New Testament has several references to help us on this. In Luke 2, Jesus is 12 years old. You'll remember this story. Yeah. His parents lost him. This is the only <laughs> childhood reference we really have to Jesus. And he's missing, and they're tearing Jerusalem apart, trying to find Jesus. Where's he at? So they went up to the festival. They found Jesus in the temple. Yeah, so they, when they find him, they're like, oh my goodness, Jesus, where were you? What have you been doing? Jesus responds, and this is Luke 2, verse 49. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Well, his father, Joseph, is standing right there looking at him. Yeah. His adoptive father, however you want to say it. Yeah. A foster father, and that's not what he's talking about because their home is in Nazareth, which they're about to journey to. So when he looks at Joseph and Mary and says, well, if you were looking for the son of God, wouldn't you look for him in his father's house? Right. So Jesus clearly has defined the father's house for the first century Jewish culture as the temple. He's in the temple teaching the scholars and asking and answering questions. Which gives you a clue early on in the scripture that when the Jewish culture thought about where is God, the temple is where God is. Mm -hmm. And of course, that harkens back to the Old Testament when you had both a tabernacle with God's presence there, literally, and then a temple built by Solomon with God's presence there. We know that somewhere between the Testament, God's presence is no longer, you didn't have a pillar of fire going up to the Jerusalem temple in the days of Jesus. But the frame of reference for Jewish people in the days of Jesus was that temple is God, the father's house. Right. And that would have been their mental thinking. Let me show it to you again in John chapter two. Which this is a really good example because this is all John's account of the gospel. Correct. And so if he's calling the father's house something somewhere, you have to assume that he's talking about the same thing elsewhere. Correct. So he's saying this is Jewish thinking for our day. And he tells the story about how Jesus went into the temple and drove out the money changers. So the verse reads like this, John 2, 16. To those who sold doves, Jesus said, get these out of here, exclamation point. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Yeah. So Jesus now as a grown man, not a child anymore, Mm -hmm. right in his ministry, when he's got his disciples around him and they're seeing these things and hearing these things and the world's recording these things now. Right. He's saying, you've made the temple slash my father's house, just a hotbed of commercialism and a money-making scam. Stop it now. We're going to clean this mess up. This dishonors my father for you to do this in his house. Wow. Yeah. So the father's house connotation in the gospels is to the temple, not to heaven. Yeah. But again, I want to go back to the sermon now. What we're saying is that the earth was created with a heaven earth overlap. Eden was a temple Mm -hmm. where heaven and earth touched. 
And again, that was the original design and intention. And the story the Bible is telling is that because the humans rebelled against God, heaven and earth were torn apart. Mm -hmm. You see little glimpses throughout history where heaven and earth are touching again. Yeah. Jacob had a famous dream. And in the dream, a portal opened Mm -hmm. and a staircase came down and angels were ascending and descending between heaven and earth. Right. And that night he wrestled with God Mm -hmm. and God changed his name to Israel and touched his leg and he began to limp and all of these things. And Jacob said, this is now Beth El, the house of God. This is none other than the gate of heaven. The Lord was in this place and I knew it not, he said. And what happened is a little glimpse of heaven touching earth. In the New Testament, we learn Jesus made a reference to that with Nathaniel again and said, you shall see greater things than this. You shall see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Now this yeah. is deep stuff now. Yeah. And Jesus is saying, essentially, I am the connection between heaven and earth. I am the one who's going to reconnect them. And I am the connection. Yeah. You see now glimpses of heaven and earth reconnecting in the tabernacle. We took them to Mount Sinai two weeks ago. And when God the Almighty showed up, they were scared to death because heaven and earth had touched there for a moment and God was audibly speaking. And we think that would be so cool to be there. It was so terrifying. They ran for their tents. Right. So they built then the tabernacle. It was a little mobile hot spot where heaven and earth touched. Mm -hmm. Everything in the tabernacle speaks of Jesus, of God, if you would. It speaks of Eden. There are cherubim there. There is the candlesticks. And when you read the design of this, there are like almond branches with knops and bowls and buds and leaves. And there are trees, there are depictions of trees. It's all hearkening back to Eden. Mm -hmm. There's precious stones and gold and silver and tree depictions and angelic being. It's all hearkening back to Eden. Well, then they built the permanent temple. That was the mobile tent they used. But then David wanted to build a temple. You'll remember this story. And God said, no, I'm going to let your son build the temple for me. You amass the stuff, the wealth, et cetera. And Solomon will build the temple. This was the temple now. Solomon's temple was the one the history books talk about. This was a pure gold overlaid. This was the gleaming temple. Yes. Yes. This was the temple. The tour guides in Israel tell us, they used to say, if you ain't seen the temple, you ain't seen nothing. (laughs) I mean, that's the way they say it. It was that masterpiece. And God's presence was there. And so if you said to an Old Testament Jew, what is God's house? Or let's go to God's house. 100% they would refer to the temple in Jerusalem as being God's house. Yeah. And it's important to recognize that because Jesus is talking to people who are in that same frame of mind. When he says my father's house, there's no question to the people he's speaking to about what he's actually talking about. So for us, we look at it through a very Americanized view. We're looking through a lens that's been really tainted over time. Correct. For them, it was very immediately accessible to their minds as far as what he's talking about. So then to get back to the question, when he's saying, in my father's house are many rooms, what is that talking about? So the temple was, again, this masterpiece of architecture. It had many rooms. Yeah. Now there's obviously the holy place, holy of holies. We all know about that, where the Ark of the Covenant is, et cetera. But in the courtyard, there are many rooms. Yeah. It's a spacious place, has a huge footprint on top of the mountain there in Jerusalem. Even today, it has a big footprint but there used to be rooms all around it Mm -hmm. and they were used for service. They were used for whatever business was being transacted by the people in the temple. And in the new Testament later, you see some of the apostles up there preaching sermons on Solomon's porch and places up there in that vast expanse. Let me cycle back now to the discourse 13, 14, 15, 16. 
of John. Jesus now in chapter 13 says something like this. I'm in verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And then Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? I love this because the apostles are asking the questions you and I want to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Where is this? Place? Where? Yeah. So are you flying away to heaven or exactly what are you talking about yeah, here? Where we're talking are about you going? Caribbean vacation. You yes. know, what are we, what are we dealing with? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. So what you want to grasp is he's saying, I'm leaving. You can't go. Well, you can come later. Well, you can't go now. That's yeah. the recurring theme across three or four chapters here. Now let's go to chapter 14 and see if the theme is consistent. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you. We know this is the Holy Spirit he's speaking of now. Mm -hmm. And he will be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, let me see if I can just wrap a few things up right here. So yeah, because there's quite a lot of rich theology in those statements. So father's house is temple in yeah. its original application to them. Now they could take it from there and develop it, but that was the original application to it. The text is about, I don't want you to be devastated. I'm trying to bring you some words of comfort. I'm going away, but I'm going to send someone else to you. And then Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit is going to be sent to them. You know him. He lives with you. He will be in you. He, the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Then verse 18, watch Jesus flip the pronoun. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Right. Jesus is making a really poignant point here that he and the Spirit are one. So Jesus is leaving. Let me use a little bit of my own paraphrase here. In bodily form. Yeah. He will not leave them without his presence, though. He's going to come right back to them yeah. in spirit form. Right. And they will have his abiding presence with them. He will not leave them alone. So when he says, I'm going away, I'm going to leave you. He means bodily. They're accustomed to having Jesus sleeping over there in that tent mm -hmm. or walking right here beside us down the road. That manifestation of God in bodily form Jesus said, you're going to be sad when I'm not here. Yeah. And I get that. I kind of walking in their sandals and I can feel their loss. I'm sure that when they got back together later in the upper room, they looked at that empty seat where Jesus sat yeah. with tears in their eyes and said, oh my gosh, I wish he was right here with us again. And then they shook themselves a little bit and said, but he is here with us. Yeah. And remember, he told us to remember. That he was with us. Yeah. He's not with us in bodily form, but he is with us in spirit form. This is the whole point of the Apostles' Creed and the Trinitarian statement that we're studying. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It is a Trinitarian statement. You say, well, what is God? He is the Father, Son, and Spirit. He is God manifest in three ways. Yeah. He came bodily. He left bodily. He came back in a spirit form. He was here in the Old Testament before Jesus, the man was ever born in Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. He has always existed. This is what John told us in John 1. He was in the beginning with the Father, with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Yeah. So you say, well, who made it, God or Jesus? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
And then Genesis adds this, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep in the day of creation. So did the Spirit do the creation or Jesus? Exactly. Yes. Yes is the answer. Yeah. God created the heavens and the earth. So Jesus' point is, I am leaving you physically, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. Mm-hmm. I'm going to send my spirit and he's going to be with you. And you know, then just a few verses later in verse 23, Jesus continues and says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and he will come to them and make our home with them. Now this is beautiful because the words our home is the exact same Greek word that the KJV translated mansion. The questioner asked the question, in my father's house are many rooms. Yeah. That many rooms, that Greek word is the exact same as in verse 23 that is translated, we will make our home with them. What I want you to see is I want you to see that the theme that's being woven here is Jesus saying, okay, I'm leaving, but I'm going to continue to abide with you. Yeah. And there's a shift of the location of God's presence. So you go from God's presence being within the temple and the tabernacle, right? And Jesus is saying, we're no longer going to look there for where God's spirit dwells. Now we're going to make our home within the believer, right? God is at home in you. And that's now where you can find his presence. And that's what Jesus is saying. And you know this because again, there's no chapter breaks in the original. When you flow into chapter 15, Jesus switches the metaphor away from house, home, dwelling place. He switches the metaphor to vineyard, something the apostles would understand again. Mm -hmm. And John 15 is famous for, I am the vine, you are the branches, except you abide in me, you cannot bear fruit, abide in me, bear fruit. By this shall all men know you're my disciples. So now the metaphor shifts, but the theme doesn't shift. Mm -hmm. This is the upper room discourse. It's still one conversation that Jesus is having. 13, 14, 15, 16. It's all one running conversation. Just now Jesus has chosen to illustrate a different way. Okay. I see maybe you're not getting that fully. You'll remember this later and write it down, but you're not getting it fully. Let me flip over here. Let's talk about a vineyard for a minute. Abide in me and I in you. Yeah. One thing that I think is really important to remember about, especially the way that Jesus speaks to his disciples and his followers, the listeners that are around him. When we look back on these, we're trying to decode all of these metaphors because we have the entire Bible. We're reading it with a lot of background information and knowledge, a lifetime of being churched people. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's speaking to them freshly. They're learning all this brand new. And so they have to experience it through metaphor to understand it. Sometimes we try to weigh over encode the text with things that just aren't there. It really is as straightforward as Jesus is talking about one theme here. And he's using multiple images to get his point across to people who don't have a lifetime of understanding like the modern American church does. So if you go back to the 14 passage where he says, I'm leaving and I'm going to fill in physically, yeah, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to send my spirit. I will be with you. And he again makes it me. I'm coming right back just in spirit form to be in you. When he talks about indwelling them, again, the metaphor shifts. God doesn't live in the temple you call the father's house up there on the hill. God lives in you. And all of this is present tense when he's unfolding it. He's not saying in the future, we're all going to fly away to be in heaven. He's saying right now in this age, that's about to be inaugurated by my death, burial, and resurrection. I am about to make it possible for God to live in every one of you. And I'm about to open up new things right now for the kingdom of God, for the reunification of heaven and earth. And so then he starts talking about vine and branches, remain, abide, 
live in. It's the same conversation. He's just switched metaphors and he keeps telling them, remain in me, abide in me. I'm going to abide in you. Yeah. What he's saying is we are going to be forever connected just because I'm not here physically. Don't fall apart on me now. Yeah. I'm going to indwell you in a spiritual way and I am never going to leave you. You are never going to be alone. His death or our death does not separate us from God. Mm -hmm. We think of death as a separation because we lose our loved ones and we do not see them anymore. Yeah. And so he knew that's where our minds went. And he's immediately saying, death is going to take me out of here physically. Yes, but we are not going to be separated. No. Yeah. So don't think of death as separation. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to return, which they won't get for three more days. Yeah. But because I have a resurrection, I'm going to let you experience that same resurrection. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to be with you and I'm going to be in you. And these references to I'm going to open up the father's house or we're going to abide together or we're going to house together. They would not have read that as we're going to fly away to heaven a thousand years from now or 10 years from now. Yeah. And then we're going to live with God. They understood he was saying, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to indwell you. Chapter 16, same conversation, is about the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And yeah. he just runs that same metaphor again and just keeps saying, I will send the comfort to you. He will be in you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So when the original hearers heard Father's house, they thought temple in Jerusalem. When Jesus starts explaining this across these five chapters, Jesus isn't going necessarily somewhere. He's going to someone. I'm going to return to the Father, mm -hmm. but we are not going to leave you. We're going to indwell you from now on. Yeah. We will never be separated. We will always be together and be connected. Now, there are several applications that can spin off of this. One of the applications that is prominent among theologians is maybe there's layers to what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Certainly, he's saying, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to be in you. Maybe he's also saying, tomorrow when they nail me to the cross and I bow my head and say, it is finished in the father's house, what's going to happen at that very moment? Now, again, the father's house is what? The temple. The temple. What happens in the temple, it's recorded in the scripture, the moment Jesus gives up the ghost. The veil, the access point was ripped in half. The thing that was a barrier yeah. that kept the common man out of the holy place mm -hmm. and only the priest could go in there. Yeah. It was the veil of the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom as if two giant strong hands of God reached up and grabbed it yeah. like you might pull apart a paper towel and just ripped it apart and the earth shook. And yeah. can you see in the temple, the doors flying open and the veil being ripped apart and everybody suddenly realizing the temple is wide open. Yeah. What just happened? Well, Jesus just kept his word. Mm -hmm. I just opened the father's house to everyone. Yeah. Now let me go a little bit further with that application. There is a wall around the courtyard that says, if you're a woman, you may not go any further upon penalty of your own life. This is at the temple. At the temple. There is a women's courtyard and a woman cannot proceed over into the man's side, which is obviously closer to the throne of God. You're saying yeah. yeah. there is another wall beyond that wall that says, if you are a Gentile, you cannot proceed past this point. Wow. We will kill you. If you do death penalty for violating this, you will have defiled the temple mount, you know, all this kind of nonsense. Yeah. So what I'm saying is there were barriers in place, walls with gates that said, if you're a non-Jew, you can't go any further. Yeah. Okay. If you're a non-male, you can't go any further. Okay. If you're not a Levite of the certain order, you can't go any further. Yeah, blocking access to God based on demographic lines. 
Exactly. Demographics, whether that's gender, race, whatever. But when Jesus died on the cross, what did he do? He kept his promise. I'm going to prepare for you a place in my father's house. Yeah. I'm going to blow the doors off this place and I'm going to rip down every barrier that stands between you and access to God. And I'm going to do it because of my death, burial and resurrection tomorrow. Now, he didn't say it that way, but that's one interpretation of what he's saying. I go to prepare a place for you. Here's the image that I was given in my tradition. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. My mind snaps to a heavenly scene where Jesus has just arrived from planet Earth with fresh holes in his hands and says, okay, I need a team of angelic bricklayers. Mm -hmm. I need a team of angelic masons and carpenters and roofers and civil engineers. Mm -hmm. And we're going to roll up our sleeves. And they got blueprints spread out on this big table. And they're building subdivisions in heaven and building mansions. And you know, when you think about it, if we just kept pulling the thread, the whole mansions in heaven thing starts to unravel. First of all, the word is not mansion. It means dwelling place. All the modern versions translate as rooms, rooms in my father's house. But that's an allusion to the temple. That's where they get the language from. But have you ever asked yourself, okay, Jeremy, you live in a big mansion. Now you have a picture in your mind? Oh yeah. How many rooms does your mansion have? Oh, at least 45. How many bathrooms does it have? 46. Who cleans that? Someone else. (laughs) Or it's not heaven, right? Right. Who's cooking? You see, you start asking practical questions because Jesus didn't mean for that language to be applied in this way. Yeah. And they didn't apply it in this way in the first century. And, and honestly, that's a very Americanized view of scripture. So you live in a 43 room mansion all by yourself. What do you do with 43 rooms? It's just such an impractical application. Do you sleep in a different bed every night? Probably. <laughs> no, because you were taught in your tradition, there is no night there. Oh yeah, that's true. So you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And you're in a glorified body that doesn't need sleep. Yeah. So what do you do with 43 bedrooms? And I'm over here with 43 bedrooms and Susan's over there with 43 bedrooms and your Erica's over yonder with 43 bedrooms. Yeah. And none of this makes any sense whatsoever. No. And how big would this space have to be? And what's the point? Do you not see a problem with, oh, I have 44 bedrooms, Jeremy. You only have 43? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, All of a sudden what it does is it turns eternity and eternal glorification of the father. It turns it into something that's very self-centered. This is the problem that I have with that, you know, we mentioned it earlier, the hymn mansion over the hilltop. It's all about how one day I'm going to get everything I deserve and I'm going to feel great about it. I'm going to walk the streets of gold, but you know what? I want a gold one that's silver lined. I want all of these things. And it's just a very self-centered view of eternity when really the whole point of eternity is very little about us and our own gratification instead about how we can eternally glorify God. So this is also the question is fantastic. And the person who asked it is fantastic. And it serves as another moment for us to say, okay, we're not going to proof text. Mm -hmm. This does not help build good theology. Yeah. And again, that means let's not take a verse and then build our whole idea of the afterlife on one verse. Yeah. Which we misunderstand because we're 2000 years removed from the Jewish temple centric world of Jesus in that day. And it makes us come away with the wrong idea of what the afterlife is like. Yeah. Jesus is saying to his disciples in a five running chapter discourse, I'm a leaving, but here's what's really happening. I'm about to make atonement for sins. 
the big purpose for which I came in order for the kingdom of God to come and heaven to be reunited with yeah, earth, for that veil to be torn in order for you to have access to the father in the morning, I'm going to be tortured to death on that cross. They're going to bury me and I'm going to rise from the dead and you're going to be devastated yep. when you see what they do to me tomorrow. But don't be upset. Remember these words. Now you can imagine how much love did Jesus have for the disciples to spend this great effort to comfort them with an event they didn't even see coming. Yeah. Who's comforting Jesus? He's surrounded by his closest friends right now. Where are the people saying to him, this is the hardest moment of your life. You must be a wreck right now. Yeah. What can I do to help you? I'm here for you. Listen, they are not expressing their love for him. Mm-hmm. He's expressing his love for them. Yeah. They're not comforting Jesus in the critical moment of all of mm-hmm. history. It's God that again takes the lead yeah. and says to the humans in the person of Jesus Christ, speaking to the humans, the disciples around him, I love you so much. And I know this is going to rock your world tomorrow. I just want to stop and give Jesus a hug right there and say, it's going to rock your world too, Jesus. Yeah. But nobody had the foresight to know except for him. The omniscient one, yeah, he knew, they didn't know. And had they known, no doubt, they would have comforted him and loved him in that way. But it just speaks to me about, okay, so the house metaphor is not working. Okay, how about the vine metaphor? I'm not going to leave you. Abide in me. You're going to bear much fruit. I'm always going to be with you. Without me, you can do nothing. Yeah. Okay, that's not going right. Let me talk about the Holy Spirit some more <laughs> chapters. And he just keeps on trying to comfort them with these words. So we don't want to rip this verse out of that context. Yeah. This is Jesus comforting them. This is a very funeral passage. Yeah. This passage is probably the most preached text in funerals for 2000 years because it does give us comfort to know, even if maybe we got a wrong picture in our head, the fundamental truth behind it is Jesus is opening a way for us to have a relationship with the father forever, forever. So let's talk about that. We have loved ones that we have buried. Mm -hmm. I use my dad for a minute. Where is my dad? Well, I know where his body is laid to rest yeah. because I was there when we laid it to rest. He's in the veteran cemetery over in Grand Prairie, beautiful place. We laid his earthly remains, his body to rest there. Mm-hmm. But my dad is not there. But yet I would use, if you said, hey, where's your dad? Well, he's buried over in Grand Prairie. But literally that's where his body is. Yeah. But his spirit is with the Lord. So for everyone listening and saying, well, what are you saying when you're saying we're not going to heaven to live with Jesus forever? Let me see if I can clarify for a minute. Paul and the New Testament writers said to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. Mm -hmm. We lay their bodies to rest. The spirit is separated from the body and it goes to be with the Lord. We don't have tons of information about that. Our loved ones have been separated from their body. They are with the Lord. They are in some spirit form. Here's what we know. They're not suffering. They're not hurting. They're at peace and they are with Jesus. Yeah. Now you have to really think about what that means, but it means they are in some state of peace waiting for the resurrection of their body. And this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. They will get a resurrection. Mm-hmm. The Lord will return from heaven. Heaven is God's space. The earth is our space. They were meant to overlap. They got ripped apart. The kingdom of God will bring them back together so that God is right here moving and talking and working with us. And we are honoring him and we are his living images back in his temple. Yeah. 
The earth gets a resurrection and we get a resurrection. This is what the scripture is speaking of. So your loved ones who have faith in Christ, a lot of times we think about them and we think as if they have already had their resurrection. Yeah. They have not. And again, this is our tradition corrupting our thinking a little bit. Your loved ones have not got their resurrected body yet. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. Only for Jesus. Yeah. So they're waiting for their resurrection. They will get it. And then he talks about the dead in Christ will rise. Then we which are alive and remain. Then we get a change. Which again, that verse doesn't make any sense if you were to believe that the resurrection has already happened for those who have passed. Which was a big debate. Paul's debating this because some of the early church believers did believe this. Yeah. They believed that the resurrection had already happened, or they believed that Jesus was the one getting a resurrection, but not the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of confusion about that. That's why Paul, of course, in Corinthians is dealing with some confusion yeah. and bad church practice. He writes the whole long resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, to set the resurrection straight. And he tells them, you guys are teaching there is no resurrection. Listen, if there's no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And we are of all men most miserable. Mm-hmm was his conclusion. But he said, but now Christ is risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits indicating there's more to to come. He's only the beginning. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. The resurrection has happened for Christ and it's the promise that it's going to happen for us. Yeah. Your loved ones are in spirit form, waiting their resurrection. Present with the Lord. Present with the Lord. Now, wherever the Lord is, is heaven. Mm -hmm. So your loved ones are in heaven waiting for the resurrection. And when they get the resurrection, here's my point. The Bible does not teach they get resurrected bodies and then we live in heaven with Jesus for eternity. When they get resurrected bodies, they're coming back to earth. Because there's a reunification. Of heaven and earth. Yeah. And our loved ones are reunited with us. So let's just say the Lord came right now. Mm -hmm. We would expect them to get a resurrection and he would bring them with him and we would get a resurrection and we will all be with the Lord from this point forward. We will not be separated anymore. Even though the Lord is in you, we all expect to see him. We expect to see Jesus at some point, hopefully touch Jesus and hug his neck and thank him and all of this kind of thinking we have. We would love to, in some ways, love to have what the apostles had. There's just the camaraderie of proximity. Yeah, a physical proximity to Jesus yeah. Christ. Even though we have him, Jesus might argue with our metaphor here. Yeah, maybe he may so. thump us on the head and say, what do you mean physical proximity? Yeah, I'm, I'm in you. I'm with you right now. Literally yeah. in you right now. Yeah. But again, it's hard for us to think that. And way. honestly, that is the perception of the people that he's talking to in John. Correct. Because their only understanding of death is you die and then and we you go never away see and you we again. never see you. That's and right. And he's trying to remind them, I'm going to die, but I'm still going to be with you. And that I think is the point yeah. of why he allowed Lazarus to die. Mm-hmm. And he tarried so long in just a few chapters before, yeah. just tarried a few days longer so that Lazarus died and was buried. And when he shows up, Mary and Martha, remember how upset they are? If you had been here, Lord, our brother had not died. And he says to them, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. And they're like, yeah, we know. But if you had been here, you'd not died. He's like, no, watch this. Yeah. Lazarus come forth. And I think that again was all done for us, for the disciples, for the apostles, for all of the early Christians. Mm-hmm. To be able to look back on and say, no, he showed us that he could raise Lazarus from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. Yeah. He's telling us very clearly, death is not the end of this. We will never be separated from God. We will have a reunion with our loved ones. We're not waiting all to fly away to heaven to live forever. 
Mm -hmm. We're waiting for heaven and earth to reunite. We're waiting for a resurrection and we're waiting for a reunification. Bible is telling the story of a kingdom that got torn apart and is going to be put back together. And the only one who can put it back together is God's king, the one they call the Messiah. So he comes to earth. They expect to put him on a throne. And he says, no, I have to suffer first. And that's what they don't get. But he says, you'll understand in a few days. Which honestly is such a good segue then into the next section of the Apostles' Creed. Because as you've talked about before, the creed is split up in a triune statement. So the first part, which we just kind of concluded between Sunday's sermon and then this podcast episode, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The next segment starts with, I believe in Jesus Christ his only son, our Lord. And that's going to be a really interesting shift now because kind of exhausted a fatherly conversation. Now let's really look at what it means to believe in God as the son. I think we should just pick this conversation up on Sunday morning then. Awesome. And we'll discuss this in the podcast next week. Thank you guys for listening. It's been a pleasure. We hope you're really enjoying this conversation through the Apostles' Creed. I know that I've already learned so much, and we've only gone through two lines of the Creed so far. I hope you're applying it to memory, and that as you do your own personal study, you're learning exactly what the words of this Creed are so that you can then be able to fully articulate really the entire gospel message through this. I want to challenge you in the weeks ahead, as we learn each line of the Apostles' Creed, try your best to commit it to memory. Also, as you're doing your study, if you have any questions or comments, I mean, today we spent most of our time discussing a comment and a question that came in through the text messaging system. So if you have any questions, send us a message at 817-809-3040, and we would love to respond to them. Also, the Heaven and Earth series that happened just a few months ago is available on our website in a playlist at cbc.family media. You can also find the rest of our Apostles' Creed series there, as well as on all of the major podcast providers. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We cannot wait to continue these Cornerstone Conversations.